everybody and welcome to MedEd Economics today. It is Sarin Karakasu and today I'm with Professor David Just. Hello. Our grad student, Yudong Rao. Hi. And our special guest star for this episode, Professor Mark Palmer, who is joining us from University of Minnesota. Hi, Mark. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming over our podcast. So Mark is an associate professor in the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota. And he also directs the Center for International Food and Agricultural Policy. Um, Mark holds a PhD from Cornell, and in his research, he focuses on intersection of agricultural economics, food policy, and international development. Well, today, actually, we will talk about an application of supply and demand theory in economics on our real life. Uh, you may have heard the quinoa craze over the last decade. Quinoa is an ancient grain-type cereal that has been growing in popularity over USA and Europe due to its health benefits. Since considering the diversity we have here, uh, I first want to ask, like, if has any of you have ever heard about quinoa in your, during your childhood? <laughs> <laughs> no. Not childhood. It was it was like five years ago I started eating any quinoa ever. <laughs> probably for most people, right? And became popular after Oprah Winfrey promoted it in 2008. And I guess after that, Food and Agriculture Organization deemed 2013 International Year of Quinoa. <laughs> so do you know whether Oprah was promoting it for its health benefits or for yeah, its poverty alleviation? Well, as far as I know, it was health benefits. Okay. I think he, she has some like a 21 items of diet or something. Okay. And actually, as its consumption and demand increased, the prices also went up through the years. While one kilogram of quinoa was around $1.5 in 2008, um, it was more than $6 in 2014, which was four times of the former price. And this was expected the by... The Oprah effect, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, opera fact is definitely important here. And this was accept, expected by classical market equilibrium theory, of course, but as the supply was only provided by two countries, which are Peru and Bolivia. And during 2013, an interesting discussion arose between people. In a blog in Guardian, it was argued that poorer people in Peru and Bolivia were not able to afford quinoa anymore, which was their staple grain. And this was presented as the other side of the picture for, for the wealthier people. And critics to this post argued that this opinion is based on some fallacies rather than fact. And Mark, I think I will let you take it over from here. But as far as I know, your post on this discussion went viral in 2013. And this triggered your studies on this area, right? Yes. So when I saw that claim made in The Guardian, and then a couple days later, there was a counterclaim made by Doug Saunders in the Toronto Globe and Mail about how, you know, nonsense. It's not hurting people. It's making them rich. And it's really the best thing that's ever happened to them. I thought, well, you can't have uh, one thing and its contrary both be true at the same time. And and especially what really kind of grabbed me throughout all this was the fact that you have journalists making those claims in the absence of solid empirical evidence, in the absence of solid data. And so one of them had to be mistaken, and both might have been highly speculative. And so I wrote... I wrote this blog post in which I was kind of, I was, uh, quite frankly, I was irritated by the fact that those journalists were making those claims about food security without having examined any of the evidence. And I'm not asking them to, to examine the evidence themselves, right? But make those claims when there is solid evidence. Had, had they gone to any economists to talk about this, or are they just throwing these out, out wildly? No, as far as I recall, and, and the, the, I think the links are in my, in my working paper on this, there were, there were no economists. No, no economists were harmed in the making of those articles. <laughs> um, right. 
so I wrote this kind of angry and irritated blog post, and and that's when I realized that when you write, when you write and you're passionate about something, right? When the spirit moves you to write something because you think it's fundamentally wrong or fundamentally right, it kind of it, it is captured in the way you write, and I think people react in equal measure to it. And so that blog post went viral, and you know, as far as as something can go viral in the humble world of agricultural economics and food policy, but it was shared and retweeted by people like Justin Wolfers, right, who is a fairly famous economist at the University of Michigan and Bill Easterly and people like that. And it was widely read and it was widely shared. And so that kind of started a whole thing for me where I was, you know, many opportunities crossed my desk as a consequence of this. But I think for better or for worse, I became kind of known as the guy to talk to in the media. If there's, you know, if you want to talk about the price of a trendy commodity, be it quinoa a couple of years ago, or avocados uh, about a month ago in Bloomberg, you know, I was kind of the guy to talk to you about those wildly rising food prices. Well, it was a, I think it was a pretty helpful blog post for you, right? Yeah, I would say that there are kind of landmark moments in, in one's life where, you know, you kind of don't really think about what, you know, you think about what you're doing, but you don't think that the consequences are going to be this considerable. And so what ended up happening from that blog post is that Seth Gitter, who uh, finished his PhD at the University of Wisconsin at the same time I finished mine at Cornell, got in touch with me and Seth had been working a lot on coffee in Latin America hmm. um, and I never met him right I, I didn't know Seth from Adam but he got in touch and said well I'd be interested in looking at this do you think there's data and I said no, I don't think there is it's kind of nice to think and talk about this but I don't think there are data to study the, to study the problem because what struck me as being very speculative in those claims and what I wrote in my blog post was look in order to properly assess whether rapidly rising quinoa prices help or hurt people you have to know whether the average household or the median household or the representative household in those countries is mm -hmm. a net buyer or a net seller of quinoa. And specifically, right, we know that the average household is a net consumer of quinoa in Peru. But specifically, what the Guardian article had targeted was the producers and, the, and the, those households that had traditionally grown quinoa. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was particularly mistaken to say that, hey, this is really hurting those guys because the price has gone up so much that they can't afford to buy it anymore. And I'm thinking, you're talking about growers. Growers grow stuff. No one, no one forces them to sell it at market. This isn't, you know... This isn't Russia under collectivization, right? They can keep it if they, if they feel like it. They don't have to go to market and sell it. And so I thought, since we don't know whether those households are usually net buyers or net sellers or, or, or autarkic, right, meaning neither a net buyer or net seller, we don't know what the effect of an increase in price does to those people. And to make any claim that we have kind of this knowledge is heroic at best. And so, you know, coming full circle with the blog posts, my, my co-author, Seth, who was not my co-author at the time, got in touch with me. And I said, well, you know, there's no data available on this. And then we finally met, you know, about seven months later at the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association meetings in Washington. And we talked further about this and, you know, same conclusion. Seth thought that maybe someone at the Inter-American Development Bank could pay us to do this. It turns out that we got told, well, thanks, but no thanks. If you need kind of mission assistance from the IDB, we'd be happy to provide it. But there's no money for it. And then about a month later, I was... I think this was perhaps my second month at the University of Minnesota, and I, I get an email from someone at the International Trade Center in Geneva asking, look, would you be interested in studying quinoa because we have been promoting exports of quinoa in Peru, and we just don't have good evidence that this is beneficial. And so I thought, wait a second, you know, you're going to hire me to write some, to collect data and write something about a question on which we couldn't identify any data. And so we jumped at the chance to do that, Seth and me. And it was very interesting because we managed to collect a, a quarterly household survey over the course of a year. And then all the while, 
we started working with a student of mine, Joanna Fajardo Gonzalez, who, uh, who recently finished her PhD at the University of Minnesota, is now teaching at EAFIT in Colombia. And we, we found this household survey in Peru called ENAHO, which is, I think it's National Household Survey, which they conduct every year. And we thus assemble the data set of households in Peru. That's nationally, it's nationally representative samples. So it's very nice. It's kind of, given what I do, this is almost considered big data because I think we have something like 240,000 observations. Mm -hmm. And we have data from 2004 until 2013. And we can, uh, using, using clever statistical techniques, we can ascertain what the effect of rising quinoa prices or changing quinoa prices has been on consumers and on producers in, in those data. So what do you find? Well, so what we find is that, as you might expect, this is a pretty good thing for producers, right? Because we find kind of modest, positive effects on welfare. And here I have to admit that, you know, we, we use welfare in a very economics way because, um, you know, if you ask people how they feel about stuff, this is not very reliable. So what we use as an approximate measure of welfare is people's consumption expenditures. So we have very good information on households' consumption expenditures, and we can do this per capita within the household, or we can do it in levels. And that is our measure of welfare. And we find that in response to rising quinoa prices, households who grow quinoa tend to do better, meaning that they tend to spend a little bit more on, on consumption expenditures. Now, that's a measure of welfare that many people would dispute who are not economists, but for economists, it kind of is pretty accurate measure because it is it is a good proxy for people's income. And economists believe that as your income goes up, you can do more and more things with it, and you have more and more economic freedom, and therefore your welfare increases. So do you have any idea of the size of that impact? The price rise that uh, Saren was talking about, it was, it was a couple bucks, it sounded mm -hmm. like. per Was that per kilogram? Yeah, it was per kilogram. It was six dollars per kilogram during 2013 and then it was up to yeah yeah like it's for it was four times the former price four times the former yeah. price so i mean so that's in the u.s right what we see at the international level is that there's been a tripling of the price wow but we find that's what we find we find so so if you want to talk about descriptives we find that the price of quinoa has tripled between i think 2010 and 2013 2014 and it has since come back down to pre-2010 levels so in that tripling i don't know if you you can say anything specifically about this but if you know if you're talking about your average producer what does that mean to to them that that price triples what, what are they spending on that they weren't before? What are they getting that they weren't before? Uh, we can't tell you what they're getting that they weren't before. We, what we have is we have a complete measure of, of household consumption expenditures. We haven't broken it down. You haven't looked. Okay. All that I can tell you is that they, they've been spending more and therefore, you know, as economists, we say, well, they're, they look like they're better off. So what we think happens is most of the households in our sample who grow quinoa are households who grow for their own consumption. And if there's leftover quinoa, they just go to market and sell it. So that's, you know, that's kind of in line with, with what we find empirically. What we can't tell you is whether they use some of that money to buy things that are not good for them, right? So whether they spend it on junk food or sugar-sweetened beverages or things like that. And that's, that's been some of the concern is that is that, well, that was initially the concern, right? Well, they can't afford it, so therefore they buy cheaper, worse foods for them. And, well, we don't really see that. Maybe they use the extra income to do that, but it's not a big change in income. It's fairly modest. If so, they're buying those things because they have more money, not because they can't they don't have enough quinoa Correct. to and, eat. And that's a very big 
yeah. difference, right? Because if they buy those things because they have more money and they, you know, I, I believe that human beings are sovereign in their decisions, no matter how mistaken we might think they are, that's very different than they buy that stuff because they are compelled to, they are forced to do it because they have no other choice. And I guess like at the end of the, at the end of your studies, you found out like since now the kino price has actually declined to its 2010 level, yeah, right? Yeah, that's that's kind of the sad epilogue, epilogue of the whole thing for me is while we were collecting the household survey in in Peru, you know, we got our team to talk to a lot of growers uh, in the in the altiplano in the in the high plateau regions where it's grown and and the price was starting to come back down pretty quickly and a lot of growers were saying where well, I'm well I'm going to hold on to my quinoa this year because I hope the price is going to go back up. You know, if you know about the economics of this, what ended up happening is that for a period of two, three years, quinoa production involved extra normal profits. And it's very rare that extra normal, extra normal profits will remain for very long. You don't see $100 left on the sidewalk. And so big producers, agribusiness firms on the coast got into the game of growing quinoa and they were just doing it. You know, and they, they kind of bid the price down. And so it's unlikely that the price is going to go back up. This, this is like the, the story of agricultural price spikes from the dawn of time, right? I mean, they, they always come back down. And every time people believe it's never going to happen, that it's going to keep rising forever and, and start growing. And, uh, it's, it's like a bubble for the yeah, farmer. Yeah, it's <laughs> an agricultural bubble. And that's, it's, yeah. yeah. And that's exactly right, right? It's not like there are futures and options markets for quinoa. It's not like you can smooth out those price spikes and and reduce the volatility or, or the, the reduce the movements by by just saying, well, I'm going to buy kind of options or a contract on quinoa. And and to be honest, storage is was fairly rare when we collected the data in uh, 2014, 2015. And and so if if you can't store it, you know, and storage is a very very simple technology in the in the regions we've looked at. It's kind of a a silo that's so if you kind of wrap your arms in a circle the silo is about this big and it maybe it's a meter tall and you can put grain in it and, and seal it hermetically so as to avoid pests getting into your grain uh, but storage was not very very it was not used very widely and so we, we actually had a little experiment in our survey trying to elicit willingness to pay for um for silos and we haven't done anything with those data maybe we should get back to them <laughs> <laughs> this is actually really interesting. So actually, I have another question for you. And then, so I and I think those like the results of those studies are really interesting. So, but what do you think in the first in the first place? What was the like main beliefs, like main fall fallacies that led to those this argument in the first place, like from the Guardian? So people think that. I think this was also argued in this discussion, which was presented as a counter-argument for the first one, right? Can you remember those? I remember I remember both the Blythman and the Doug Saunders articles, yes. Yeah. Doug Saunders was uh, talking about like three fallacies that led to this uh, first false in the first place, right? And the first oh, one was... Oh, no, I don't, I don't remember those. I remember just the claim and the counterclaim. You know what? I, I remember what I need to remember for my... <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I understand you, <laughs> and, I guess. And the, the rest is just kind of, uh, it, it's just like too much payload in my brain. I, I need all the space I can get. Yes, yes, conserve. No, I understand. <laughs> like, actually, like your evidence, your research is a great evidence for the, I think, for the result of those this discussion. But I, uh, as, as far as I can see that, like, the Doug Saunders uh, argues there were three fallacies that led to this uh the belief for the, from people who first argued that quinoa was bad for poor people. And first one was that, 
So we can talk about this. The first one was that the idea that success must be bad for the poor people. I guess this is something that we sometimes have in, my, in our minds, right? What do you think about it? So the idea essentially that if, if somebody's getting rich, it's mm-hmm. got to be grinding on the poor somehow? Yeah, this was one of the fallacies that may have resulted in this belief in the first place. And the second one was people are better off consuming food near, um, grown near them, and which we can say, I guess, locally, the local bias. And actually, there, there, it's a trend now over, uh, I don't know, I guess, over the U.S. and like in some other uh, regions in the world as well. People are really trying to consume the local foods, which we also see here in Ithaca as well, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's all over the place. Especially and, in Ithaca. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I guess, speaking as economist, I feel like it's sort of some sort of religion. <laughs> and are we sure if it's really re- really good for the people, like real producers or the growers? Maybe this is something that can be questioned as well. Both of those, I think, I, I think economics has a lot to say about, uh-huh. first off, is it possible to have, you know, have some sort of price spike like that that actually benefits the poor? Well, mm-hmm. I, I think I think Mark gave us an answer to that. Yep. Um, that, that those sorts of things can end up being shared. People ridicule the idea that uh, that things will trickle down. Uh, but sometimes that's, I mean, it, it, this isn't a trickle down. This is, they're the ones producing it, right? And so that rise in price actually just goes directly to them. The other notion about local, this is, if you want to get an economist started just ranting, Talk to them about the benefits of local. <laughs> I was going to say there there is quite a lot a lot to unpack in what in what Saren was listing as all those fallacies. The thing with local is that first, how local is local? To what exactly is local? I was reading. I can't remember where I read this, but two two things kind of make me think that local is you know it's fine if 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 you treat it as a luxury good. And people with high income decide to buy something locally. That's great, right? Who am I to tell people what to do with their income when they have it? To make it a matter of policy is a bit different because I think it was Jason Lusk, my colleague from Purdue University, who once said, well, if you if you really want local and you live in the upper Midwest, good luck eating citrus and getting vitamin C in the winter, for instance. You, you might have to supplement. And honestly, there isn't a whole lot of stuff that is that is that is available locally in winter here unless it's kind of preserved or pickled or things like that. The other thing is that going back to this local, how local is local or what is local, apparently tomatoes are not even local or, or not even native to Italy. They were imported from somewhere else. And we know that we, we know that spaghetti is not native to Italy because it was imported from China in the 16th century. And so and I mentioned Italy because so, when when is local? <laughs> so actually that comes to the third fallacy that we have, which is authenticity by authenticity of food. Yeah. Should we really eat what our ancestors were eating in the past? Look, I'm not you know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist. I can't tell you exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. whether no, no, I, whether I should be eating the things that my ancestors in northwestern France were eating in the you know 14th, 13th century. Maybe, right? The truth of the matter is that even if that were the case, and maybe it is the case, it has to be traded off against cost, and it has to be traded off against preferences. And there are some food is not just you know we derive distinct welfare from eating food. Yep. Right. We eat something good and we enjoy it and we derive some positive amounts of welfare from it. Uh, but there's also other things that go into it. And they're you know, kind of like long term benefits or 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 the opposite of eating certain things. You know, I think it all needs to be traded off against one another. And it's not clear to me that eating local is more that eating local is healthier 
So does it taste better? Perhaps it does because it's shipped on shorter distances. So from personal experience, I can tell you that uh, I grew up in Montreal and I think the produce we have over there is quite frankly not that great mm-hmm. because my first, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my first real, so it, it gets trucked all over, right? And it's, it's grown for long distances and things like that. And it's the same in the U.S., to be honest, yeah. in, 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 you know, vast areas of the U.S. anyway. If you're fortunate enough to live in Northern California, that might be different. But my first job was uh, at the International Fund for Agricultural Development in Rome and across Across the train tracks from my apartment were the general markets. And every night at midnight, trucks would be coming in from the region and delivering produce and stuff. It wasn't that great because there were a lot of mosquitoes in my apartment as a consequence of all that produce. And it was noisy at night. But that's when I realized that ha- but that having stuff delivered daily, traveling very short distances, right? Italy is not that big of a country. So at most, the stuff would probably travel eight, nine hours at most. And that's when I truly started enjoying eating uh, fruits and vegetables because they really tasted good. So, so I believe that that local might taste a little bit better. But again, this has to be traded against the price of local, and it has to be traded off against you know preference for certain things. And to make it a matter of policy and say, well, everyone should eat locally. I I would not. That's a bridge too far for me. That that's where it gets mm-hmm. into trouble, right? Because it is, so. I mean, this is this is basic economics. This is Ricardo, right? Um, a, a famous famous old old economist who you know essentially taught us about comparative advantage. He said, you know, if if we force every locality to grow their grow their own tomatoes, there are going to be a lot fewer people who can have tomatoes, right? Tomatoes are going to be a lot more expensive, and fewer people are going to be able to have them. So. Let places specialize, and some places are going to be able to produce mass quantities, and other places can specialize in other things, and then trade makes us all better off. That doesn't mean that you can't grow them local. Like, like Mark says, I think you can get – there are some things that are grown locally in Ithaca that I absolutely love. There are some things that Ithaca was not made to grow, <laughs> and I'd, I'd prefer not to run into those things. I'd prefer to buy them elsewhere. Yeah, I guess this is the point also what – This is what also you should consider what is the utility, like what is what is the utility for each people that they're concerned? Is it only the um, like health benefits or is also are there also other factors that um, affects our utility that we get from food? And this may be like one part of it. This may be related to the, what our ancestors were eating, like what we were what we were used to eating in our families. And that may also affect your utility, basically your welfare in the end. Yeah. I think there there's a number of things that you just said, Saren, that, that kind of surround how people treat food. And the value that we derive from eating a food item is is not just, you know, does it taste good? Mm-hmm. Is it going to make me more healthy? There's also, what does this say about me, right? And, or what image of, what image of myself does this reflect to me? Because, you know, certain people eat certain things because they have a certain, you know, a certain vision or view of themselves. I think it was Warren Velasco in a book called Food Culture. I can't remember exactly what the title of the book. And and Velasco is an instructor or a professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where he was explaining how with the decline of an importance of religion in the United States in the 20th and early 21st century, people have kind of grappled to various things to kind of develop their identity. So so back in, say, the 1930s, when, when religion occupied a much bigger role, people had a, a sense of their identity that was very much derived from religion and from their religious beliefs. I think now that that's largely gone or that has subsided largely, people go for other things to kind of 
articulate what their identity is. And now, you know, I'm, I might be talking, I'm pretty sure that an anthropologist or, or you know, a cultural anthropologist would hear me talk and say, well, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But, <laughs> but you know, I, stop you. I, <laughs> it, certainly, it certainly made sense to me as I read it, right? And it kind of is a way to explain the world because, because yeah, I mean, as you say, there are certain things that we eat because we've always eaten them. There's a lot of habit formation and there, there are a lot of things that we, we wish we wouldn't eat, but then we find ourselves eating them kind of over and over and simply because there are strong emotional reactions attached to them because you ate that when you were you know, a little child with your parents or with your grandparents and eating those things, though it might not take you back there consciously makes you feel good in ways that you can't exactly tell why, but it makes me feel good, therefore I keep eating it. Well, we need some connection either with our past or with our family, and food is a really easy way to do it because it's in our lives, in our daily life, and we don't have to make any effort to access to that right now. Yeah, and that's why I think all the the worries of the, you know, the, the slow food people and local people about how globalization is going to wipe away cultures, but specifically food cultures, I think that is, you know, it will change what people eat, certainly, because as you as you make certain things relatively cheaper than others, people will substitute away from the more expensive things to the most to, to the more to the cheaper things. But there's still a kind of a part of people's identity, where they expect that you know, they're not going to completely jettison what they were eating when they were younger or what they were eating in, with their family growing up just because things are cheaper. Preferences really matter as well. Con- constraints also matter, though, right? I mean, a lot of the development of our diet has been functional. Um, you look at the, the changes in diet over the, the Depression era, um, and a lot of it was in response to the fact that it was really hard to come by certain foods and we needed to save certain foods for, for troops and the war effort. We now look back on what our grandparents were used to preparing and eating, and we think about that as, as sort of our culture. But it was sort of shaped by circumstances that were beyond their control, <laughs> right? Yeah, that was that was definitely kind of ex- externally driven, right? When when certain things were rationed and you could you didn't have enough oil or butter, I guess, um, or bread, I think, that that changes the diet and, and in very interesting ways. My grandfather's household, he was a child through the Depression, and they had a doctor come visit and, uh, and, and notice that they were malnourished in some way. And so he said, every day, you boys go out to this creek and catch frogs, and you'll have frog legs for dinner so they could have the protein they needed. This became sort of a staple in our, our household, <laughs> um, in, in our family, uh, through that sort of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So regarding the global trade, so I have a question for the agricultural um, trade. So do you think that the agricultural trade, not only when the agricultural um, trade bring a lot of welfare to consumers and farmers, they actually bring a lot, uh, exacerbate the global imbalances between North and South? No, I don't think that's correct. I think people don't trade if it doesn't benefit them, and therefore it makes people better off to trade. Now, does it is it inequality increasing? I also don't think that's true, or at least I don't have any evidence for it. I'm not a trade economist. I have, I think within countries, certainly trade can have negative effects. You know, we have a whole, we've had a whole election in the US last year that was, that was the ex post narrative about it was, well, international trade, NAFTA in particular, has kind of left some regions completely derelict and abandoned because the gains from international trade have, have kind of gone around those regions. So I think that is more likely than saying, well, it's, it's increased the north-south trade imbalance. By the way, I really don't like this north-south 
this is terminology from the 1980s in development. Nowadays, we talk about developing versus industrialized economies. And so going back to what I was saying, I'm not a trade economist, but the little work that I have done on the trade of food has been on the international trade of fish and seafood. And I have an article in World Development in 2016, I think, where we look at trade flows of, of, of fish and seafood between developed and developing countries. And it's fascinating because what we find is that the volume of trade from developed to developing countries and vice versa is exactly the same. So if you look at pure quantities, rich countries export exactly what they import from developing countries in terms of quantities. And the mystery kind of gets resolved when you look at values, when you, when you attach a price to what's being exported and imported, because what developing countries export is worth a lot more than what they import. And that completely makes sense, right? Because U.S. consumers can afford to have sashimi-grade tuna or whatever the, 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 the newfangled thing is to eat fish-wise, because I think, I think tuna is now endangered, uh, or some varieties thereof are, are highly endangered. But we can afford to the, the really good kind of expensive stuff to, Im to import, which is what we do. And then we export, you know, fish roquettes and frozen fish sticks and things like that. And, and so there's kind of a quality exchange occurring, which you might say, well, that's unfair. Well, no, because people buy what they can afford. And so at lower levels of income in developing countries, you know, that's what people can afford. You know, they... I, they might, most people in developing countries don't have the income to afford sashimi or sushi. And so it's a quality exchange that's taking place. And, you know, it's making people better off, which I find fascinating. It, it seems like it at least has to benefit the people who are engaged in trade. There may be third parties, as you mentioned, that could be hurt by somebody else's trade. No, exactly. There certainly are trade externalities. And I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. not, again, I'm not a trade economist. I can't get into that. But the blanket statement that international trade has made uh, developing countries worse off or, or has, has kind of increased the wedge between poor and rich countries, I don't know that that's true. And especially when it comes to the trade of agricultural commodities, because agriculture is still the sector of the world economy that is the most protected from trade. Because for a host of reasons, agriculture is the most protected sector of international trade. It's not like it's not like trading semiconductors. There are restrictions on the trade of food. Some countries ban exports of certain things. So when, the, when uh, food prices spiked in 2008, Philippines banned exports of rice. And that's agricultural protection, right? That's a means of protecting people in the Philippines. The problem is that if everyone does that, if every country starts banning exports of rice, that's every country that produces it, that really worsens the problem at the international level. Yep, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is a, definitely a, an area of another research and like another study. But yeah, that's definitely interesting to hear about. So yeah, Mark, thank you for joining us today, actually. Uh, we really enjoyed our conversation and I think it was really helpful about learning the more real evidence about this quinoa discussion, uh, which happened back away in 2013. So thanks for listening us to our audience. And if you want to find contact us or if you want to share your ideas with us, you can reach us at madadicon in Twitter and also like madadicon at gmail.com by emailing us. So thank you and have a great one. Thank you. Thanks for having me.